Good morning, everyone. <coughs> uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started a, a few minutes uh, earlier. Um, just a reminder again, April 16th, uh, we'll be transitioning from 9.15 uh, to 9 a.m. Bible study. So again, just keep that um, in the front of your minds as we, as we approach that date. The other thing I want to mention, some of you might be wondering, well, why isn't uh, Pastor Sean standing up here continuing um, the message in, in Job? And that's primarily because we have a, a schedule, a rotation um, going on. And so uh, the month of April, we'll be taking a, um, a diversion to the book of Proverbs. And then I believe Lord willing in June. Um, uh, Pastor Sean will be resuming the, the book of Job. So for the next few weeks, like I stated, we'll be turning to the book of Proverbs and continuing to glean some of the wisdom contained in that book. And so I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses one to nine, but the focus will really be on verses eight to nine. Again, Proverbs chapter one, beginning in verse one, says, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to to your head and ornaments about your neck. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you have allowed us to gather here in the worship of your holy and and righteous name. And I pray even as the word goes forth from this place that you would seek to achieve all that you have uh, purpose for it to achieve this day. That you would strengthen your people, that you would correct those who are in error, that you would once again seek to save those who are lost, who do not know you, who do not know the saving mercies and grace in Christ. I pray once again that you would attend to the preaching of the word and that you would use my feeble efforts, Lord, to glorify your name. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was about last year that we were in the book of Proverbs and As such, I feel that it would be a good idea to just do a little bit of a review 
of some of the things that we covered, particularly in Proverbs chapter 1 from verses 1 to 7. And so in the first place, you may recall that we said that the genre of the book is wisdom literature. Now, wisdom, as defined in verses 1 to 3 in the book of Proverbs, is not just about making advantageous decisions. No, on the other hand, wisdom is a mastery of the art of living in accordance with God's expectations. So, for instance, if I could get ahead in life by lying and deceiving, and there was a high probability that I would get away with it, that would not be wisdom. In fact, wisdom may call me to uh, tell the truth in that instance. It may even lead to my disadvantage. And again, as we recall from the Proverbs, wisdom is not just about making good decisions, but it has that strong moral component tied to it. It is tied to justice and righteousness and equity. Now, in verses 4 to 5 of the Proverbs, we see the intended audience of the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 states that the book was written to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear an increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Now again, the Proverbs presents three categories of individuals. We have the naive, we have the youth, and we have the wise. As you may recall, I made the statement several months ago that the youth are often naive, but the naive are not always in their youth. The youth and the naive are alike in that they are both uncommitted to the way of wisdom. Now, if the youth and the naive listen to the message of Proverbs, then they can make it into the third category, which is the wise. And then finally, our study in the book of Proverbs took us to verse 7. In verse 7, we find really the central theme of the book of Proverbs, which is the fear of the Lord. Again, I remind you, Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now again, as we read through the book of Proverbs, we see that this concept of the fear of the Lord actually bookends uh, chapters 1 and chapters 9. And so in Proverbs 9, 10, The book of Proverbs states the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in verse 7, it's the beginning of knowledge. And then then chapter 9, verse 10, it's the beginning of wisdom. It is first in gaining knowledge and wisdom. It is, as one writer notes, what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, what numerals are to mathematics, The fear of I am is to gaining the book's wisdom and instruction. 
And so the fear of the Lord is that foundation that we never leave. But again, what is the fear of the Lord? Well, last time we had defined the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord means that we have awe and reverence at the holiness and majesty of God. It is that trembling at the awesomeness of God that draws us into sweet fellowship and communion with the Almighty. And so this morning, reverence for God actually flows into the text that we have before us in verses 8 to 9. Again, verses 8 to 9 reads, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Now, the title of today's Bible study is Reverence for Parents. Reverence for Parents. Now, there are seldom things in Scripture that we are commanded to have reverence for. One of them, of course, is God, and then the other would be parents. In Leviticus 19, verse 3, God commands the holy nation of Israel that every one of you shall reverence his mother and his father. So again, reverence for God is the foundation for reverence for parents. And that's why Solomon, after mentioning the fear of the Lord, then proceeds to speak about parents. And so today, I want to unpack these verses by asking and answering the following three questions. First, what is the responsibility of parents to children? Second, what is the responsibility of children to parents? And third, who is our example? So again, look with me as we observe the text. It says again in verse 8, Hear, my son. After building upon the foundation of the fear of the Lord, Solomon seeks to grab the attention of his audience. He says, Hear, my son. In other words, pay attention with the intent of doing. Listen up to what I'm about to say. Now this word here in the Hebrew is found in the earliest chapters of the Bible and give a sense of what Solomon is saying. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, it says that Adam and Eve heard, that's our word again, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the, in the cool of the day. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. In other words, their hearing produced action. They listened carefully in order to act upon what they heard. And the Bible says that they hid themselves. Again, after God confronts them in the garden in Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam, because you have listened 
Again, it's our same word, to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, Adam didn't just hear his wife, but he obeyed her counsel. He put her words into action. Now, these, of course, are uh, negative examples, but they nevertheless drive home the point regarding what Solomon is about to say. He wants us to hear, to give an ear to what he is about to say. He says again, my sons, and this does not exclude daughters, by the way, hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Again, Solomon is not just speaking to his sons, but to all sons. He beckons them to listen to the sacred words of God handed down by faithful parents. He says, hear your father's instruction. Now, consider that there is an, there's an unspoken truth here. The truth is that there is an expectation that fathers will instruct their children in the ways of God. This leads us to our first point today. What is the responsibility of parents to children? Solomon again says, Hear your father's instruction. He assumes that fathers will indeed instruct their children in the things of the Lord. Now, this, of course, is both consistent in the Old and the New Testament. Right? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it states, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, the Lord speaks here directly to fathers in these verses. We are not to provoke our children, but instead we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so as one writer notes, he says this about the command. It says, it is a command addressed particularly to fathers because they are the head of the family. And its government is especially committed to them. It is the duty of a parent to exhibit such a character and to maintain such a government that it would be proper for the child to obey, to command nothing that is unreasonable or improper, but to train up his children in the ways of virtue and pure religion. In other words, as fathers... There is a way in which we can discipline and instruct that can provoke our children to anger. Now, if you've never had to apologize to your children, that does not speak to how perfect you've been, but more so to how prideful you've been. These things 
provoke to anger. If you're always right, even when you're wrong and you don't admit it, these things provoke children to anger. Again, being overly critical of every single detail. You have to do it like this, or you have to say it like that, even when it's just a matter of preference. These things can provoke to anger. Being harsh and unloving, physically abusive, controlling, or just a verbal bully. These things can provoke our children to anger. And so there are many ditches that we can fall into as fathers. And we are told that we are not to do those things that provoke them to anger, but rather we are to bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Again, when we talk about discipline, particularly as it refers to younger children, that also includes the measured and self-controlled use of the rod. Okay? There are some people who, and I'm talking about believers, who believe that it's loving to withhold the rod. But your children will grow up to hate you for it. Okay, we are commanded by the scriptures to use the rod of discipline. And this actually, as we read through the Proverbs, is an expression of love. There's also instruction, which includes both times of formal and informal instruction. So when we gather together in our families for family worship, that's an example of when we can formally instruct our children in the way of the Lord. And then as situations arise in the home, again, it presents opportunities for us to point them back to the scriptures. Now, it's not just fathers that are engaged in this godly activity, but it is also mothers. Going back to the Proverbs, you read, and do not forsake your mother's teachings. Now, as many mothers here at Grace uh, Homeschool and seek to provide children with a, re- with a well-rounded education, I want to remind you mothers to not neglect that master subject of the Christian religion. You see, theology is not just for the seminarian. This verse in Proverbs reminds wives and mothers that they too are theologians as well. In fact, the question is not whether or not you are a theologian, but whether or not you are a good theologian. And so, one of the biggest lies that you can believe is that theology is just for the university. No, on the contrary, theology is for the everyday man and the everyday woman. Some of you may be familiar with a woman by the name of Mary King. 
Mary King was the cook of the Newmarket household. And Spurgeon, in his own words, says that he was indebted to her for much of his theology. He writes in speaking of her, Many a time we had gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of the personal election of the saints, their union with Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. And I do not believe that I learned more, excuse me, and I do believe that I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity of the sort we have nowadays. Again, I point you to the scriptures, the example that we see of Paul, not Paul, excuse me, Timothy, and his mother and his grandmother. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we read, For I am mindful, this is Paul speaking, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. You see, Lois's faithfulness in teaching the Christian, Christian religion not only affected her daughter, but her grandson as well. And so, grandparents, take note. How you instruct your children can have an effect for generations to come. Now, these are the implicit commands of our text. But again, there is also an explicit command found here for children. This leads us to our second point, which is, what is the responsibility of children to parents? Now, before we go to the, the command in Ephesians uh, 6.4 that is directed to fathers, there is a command in Ephesians 6.1 and 2 that is directed to children. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, it states, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. In the first place, if children are to reverence their parents, then they must honor and obey them. As we see, Ephesians 6, 1 to 2 is a recitation of the fifth commandment found under the Old Covenant. Now, many a times there is, or you might find sometimes that there is confusion, uh, even among believers, regarding what, what is uh, done away with as far as it refers to the law and what we are to continually observe. After all, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 states, when he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So isn't the law done away with according to this text? Yes, it is. And yet, Paul makes a reference here to the law of God in Ephesians 6, 1 to 2 as binding even in the new covenant. 
So how are we to understand this? Well, the most helpful way to think of this is the law of God in three parts. We have the moral division of the law, we have the ceremonial division of the law, and then we have the judicial division of the law. And so the moral law of God are the Ten Commandments, which are forever binding upon believers, even as we see in Ephesians 6, 1 to 2. Then you have the ceremonial laws, which refer to the worship of God. These things, of course, all pointed to Christ, and after Christ came, those things were done away with. And then there is the judicial division, in which we find something interesting. The 1689 London Baptist, of, London Baptist Confession, chapter 9, verse 4, states, To Israel he also gave various judicial laws which ceased at the, time, at the same time their nation ended. In other words, there were laws that were applicable specifically under the theocracy of Israel, that once Israel ceased, those things were done away with. But then the confession then goes on to say, these laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice continue to have moral value. So while the judicial law has been done away with, there is still a continuing use of the law. It still has moral value. In other words, the judicial law of God still has application for the believer today. Now, how did the old writers conclude that about the judicial aspect of the law? Well, this is based upon how the apostles themselves interpreted the scripture. For instance, in chapter 25 of the book of Deuteronomy, we read of various laws that were given to the people of God. Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, we read, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Now Paul in the New Testament takes this law, which has been done away with, and yet applies it to ministers of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 9 Verses 8 to 11. Now you might be asking yourself, I thought we were talking about reverence for, for, children, uh, for parents. How does all of this matter? Well, it matters because I want us to consider several passages from the Old Testament that highlight the seriousness of having reverence for parents. In the first place, Dishonoring parents was a capital offense that carried with it the death penalty. Exodus chapter 21 verse 15, for instance, states, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. The adult child who dishonors his parents through physical abuse, was worthy of death. 
And so to strike your own parents is an abomination in the eyes of God. It was such a wicked and evil act that it carried with it the death penalty. But not only did physical abuse carry with it the death penalty, but also verbal abuse. Leviticus 20 verse 9 states, If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltness is upon him. So again, those who dishonored parents through the use of their tongue were worthy of death. And so to curse your own parents under the old covenant was to bring about the curse of death upon yourself. Now, not only was physical abuse and verbal abuse worthy of death, but also those who dishonored parents through sinful living were also to be put to death. Again, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21 states, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst. And all Israel will hear of it and fear. So the rebellious adult child who lived an openly sinful life was to be put to death. Now, even though the death penalty for such sins has been done away with, under the new covenant, church discipline and excommunication would be the moral equivalent for a child who is a professing believer who lives this type of lifestyle. But we should not just think that this is only something that applies to believing children. No, unbelieving children are not off the hook either, since dishonoring parents is still a serious sin in the eyes of God, regardless of one's profession. And this is in stark contrast to what the world teaches today. During the 80s and 90s, there was a slew of TV shows that taught generations of families that dysfunction was normal. In those shows, parents stood in the way of progress, and children were encouraged to find their own way through rebellion and disobedience. And this had negative consequences for many generations to come. 
And even today, our children have news shows that teach the same old lies. There are many who line up as role models regarding the parent-child relationship. And yet, there is only one standard. There is only one example that we are to follow. And this leads us to point number three. Who is our example? Who is our example? Simply stated and simply answered, Jesus is our example. Jesus modeled obedience and reverence for his parents. Now, much of the life of Jesus that we know about is in regards to his adulthood. But we do have some glimpses into Jesus as a child. If you recall the Passover incident in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, Jesus is about 12 years old and he's been missing for about three days. Picking up at, in verse 46, we read, Then after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And, it says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, the text says in verse 51 that Jesus continued in subjection to his parents. Now, this word subjection here is a military term that means to place or to rank under. It carries with it the idea of submission and obedience. It is used, for instance, to speak of the demons being subject to the disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It also refers to individuals being subject to the government in Romans 13.1. And then it also speaks of, is the same word used in speaking of all of creation being in subjection to Christ in Philippians 3.21. And so ponder for a moment that the one who had all of creation subjected to himself, came into the world and subjected himself in the same way to sinful man. What do we need to know about Jesus' childhood? That Christ fulfilled all of the law, even as a child. He perfectly kept the fifth commandment, for he honored and obeyed 
his parents. The most significant information regarding Jesus as a, as a child was that he was obedient and submissive to his parents. He listened to the instruction and teaching of his parents and teachers. And as a natural result, the Bible says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, what do you suppose will happen if, as children, you too continue in the instruction and teaching of your parents? Well, you too, like Christ, will grow in wisdom and favor with God and man. Going back to Proverbs, Proverbs 1 verse 9 states it this way. It says, Indeed, and and it's speaking about the instruction of parents, Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and an ornament about your neck. Again, a reed represented victory and prosperity in Egyptian culture, whilst a necklace represented honor and exemplary living. And so, children, God is saying, if you want to win and prosper in this life, then you need to hear your father's instruction and not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, this isn't the prosperity gospel. This is the Bible. Generally speaking, those who honor their parents will themselves find blessing and honor. This is generally true. But another aspect to consider is that honor and reverence for parents continues even when we are grown. In the first place, as adults, we understand that we do not submit to our parents in the same manner as when we were children. But nevertheless, we should still honor and reverence them. Again, if we look at Christ's example, even as he hung on the the cross, his concern was for his mother. He sought to honor his mother even with his dying breath. In John chapter 19, verses 26 to 27, we read, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. You see, Christ exemplified the fifth commandment even into adulthood. Though he was perfect and sinless, he honored his mother, who though redeemed, was nevertheless sinful. And so how much more so should imperfect children reverence imperfect parents. Again, even if your parents are not believers, they still should be honored and reverenced. This in no way lessens our duty towards them. 
Does their unbelief make things more difficult? Yes, but not impossible. And God gives adequate grace to deal with parents who themselves need to be taught the law of God and the grace of Christ. And so, in conclusion, I want to exhort all you sons, all you daughters, to be like Christ. Submit yourselves to godly instruction and teaching. Chief of which, for anyone who is outside of the gospel, outside of Christ, is to turn to him, to believe upon him. The ability to live by the fifth commandment does not reside in our own power, but in the power of Christ. Also, I pray that as parents that God might aid us and empower us to be faithful in instructing and teaching our children the ways of the Lord. I pray that we might live lives that are consistent with the gospel and that as families here at Grace, that we might all subject ourselves one to another under the head who is Christ. Again, Proverbs 1, 8 to 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Let us go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for your word, which is a light and a lamp. I pray this morning that you would use, again, the the efforts, that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would drive it home to the hearts of your people. Again, for those who do not know you, for our unbelieving children, may you, by your spirit, arrest them with the truth of your word. May they see their sin. May they see the ways in which they have not honored and reverenced their parents. And may it drive them not to despair, but to the cross of Christ, where they might find salvation. I pray, Lord, for those of us as believers who have had difficult relationships with our parents, Lord, that you would even this moment cause us to fall on our knees and repent for the ways in which we have not honored them and reverence them. May we, Lord, as your people, live in accordance with your word. May we seek from this day forward to go forth and and honor them and reverence them. Lord, we thank you for your spirit, and we pray now, even as this hour draws to a close, that you would once more prepare your hearts, the hearts of your people, for the coming hour. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.